Bismillah, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa mawala, amma ba'd. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah, so today inshallah ta'ala we're continuing with hadith number 33 in which the Prophet sallallahu says, لَوْ يُعْطَ النَّاسُ بِدَعْوَاهُمْ لَدَّعَى رِجَالٌ أَمْوَالَ قَوْمٍ وَدِمَاءَهُمْ وَلَكِنَّ الْبَيْنَةَ عَلَى عَلَى الْمُدَّعِ وَالْيَمِينَ عَلَى مَنْ أَنْكَرَ uh, so the hadith, this is a hadith which, which translates as if, we're, if people were given everything that they claimed then men would unjustly claim the wealth and even the lives of other people but rather the onus of proof is upon the claimant and the taking of an oath is upon the one who denies This is a hadith recorded in Bayhaqi uh, Bayhaqi, it is an authentic hadith from Sunan al-Kubra And also the wording of it is slightly different But it's the same uh, concept and idea that is found in both Bukhari and Muslim So it's definitely an authentic uh, narration What is this hadith talking about? The first portion, the Prophet is explaining what? That if every time somebody made a claim And it was just simply accepted Then anybody can claim anything Anybody can say, oh well this guy stole a million dollars from me So you have to give it to me You know, Give me his million dollars, right? Or etc. You know, anybody can make it, you're mad at somebody and oh, well, he, you know, murdered my cousin. So we have to, you know, retribution, have to put him in jail or, you know, or, or execute him or whatever the case is. Anybody can make any sort of claim. And the whole idea is what? That the Prophet says, no, rather, al-bayna, al-bayna means uh, evidence. And bayna here can refer to a few different things. Al-bayna essentially means something that makes matters very clear and evident. So it's usually translated as evidence, which could be witnesses. It could be corroborating evidence. So witnesses being shuhada, corroborating evidence, meaning qara'in. Qara'in meaning, you know, just corroborating evidence, something that, 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 makes, that, that proves the case. And then it could be iqrar, admission. Because obviously if you accuse somebody and then he admits, yeah, I did that, and then that's the best, that you don't need any more evidence, you just gave all the evidence. So it's all good. So these three could be considered uh, bayina. Now another term that needs to be uh, understood before we you know, continue is the concept of a, of the concept of a mudda'i. A mudda'i is the plaintiff. Right, and so in court you have the plaintiff, and then you have what the defendant, and the defendant is called al mudda'a alayhi. Okay, so these are the important terms to know. Uh, now, are all claims entertained? This is a, a, an important question in fiqh. Now, the Hanafis, the Shafi'is, and the Hanbalis, they said yes. If somebody makes a claim, brings it to court, then you have to entertain his claim. The Malikis were seem, seems that they were quite smart about this. They were like, wait a second, there has to be some sort of limits. Why is that the case? As we know, anybody can make a claim about any sort of celebrity. And they have no evidence, but they just bring it to court and say, I, you know, uh, this, you know, um, let's say celebrity, he's, he took, uh, you know, a thousand dollars from me, right? And then the celebrity would have to be dragged all the way to court so that the guy could say, what's your evidence? And he has no evidence. And then after that, he would say, do you swear that this never happened? Yes, I swear this never happened. And the person just did it to gain publicity. They just did it because they wanted to be associated with this famous person. So the Madikis, they said, there has to be some proven relationship. It can't just be anybody makes a claim. You have to prove that you guys have a relationship. Whether you're talking about you know, business partners or whatever, there has to be some uh, you know, probability that it actually took place and then these claims are taken seriously. So, to break it down in simple terms, this is how it would go. That the plaintiff would make a claim in front of the judge and it has to be, like I said, something viable. And then the judge would ask the defendant, do you admit to the charges? Now, if he says yes, then the case is in favor of the plaintiff, obviously, because he admitted, so game over. However, if he says no, then the judge will ask the plaintiff, do you have any evidence for your, for, your, for your accusation? And if he says yes, then you have to give the defendant a chance to respond to the evidence, because maybe he has an explanation for the evidence. You have to give him a chance to respond. Now obviously if he can't respond and the proof is evident, then obviously the judge will 
favor in, in, in the favor of the plaintiff. However, if the answer is no, do you have any evidence? No, I don't have any evidence. Now you're in a situation where a plaintiff is making an accusation with no evidence. And so because of that, at this point, and, and, and then the, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, and then at that point, the, then, the judge, yeah, the, the, then the judge will ask, okay, will you, the defendant, make an oath? Will you swear that this is false? Now, he can either say yes or no. If he says, yes, I swear the oath, I swear by Allah, this never took place, the guy has no evidence, he can't prove anything, then that's it. The case is dropped due to lack of evidence because the man swore an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you have to take him at face value. In other words, innocent until proven guilty. This is something that's very well known, well known in even the Western world. And this is something that subhanAllah is rooted in Islam, that you are innocent until proven guilty. However, it gets interesting if he says no. So if he says no, that means we're in a situation where the plaintiff has no evidence. He's saying, I say that, you know, this person, he stole money from me. Do you have any evidence? No, but, I but, but I'm telling you it happened. Do you want to swear that it didn't happen? No, I don't want to swear. Why don't you want to swear? So, you know, why don't you want to make an oath by Allah? So then you get into an awkward situation that there's a difference of opinion. The Hanafis and the Hanbaris would say that the judge should rule in favor of the plaintiff against the defendant. In other words, he must be telling the truth because this guy doesn't want to swear by Allah. He fears Allah. And so the, the, the claim must be true. The Malikis and the Shafi'is say, no, it's possible that the defendant is going to be asked, do you swear by Allah that what you're claiming is true? Do you swear? Why is that the case? Why would a defendant not swear by Allah? There is a possible case where he just forgot. He's like, look, I honestly don't remember what happened. So I'm not going to swear by Allah that it didn't happen, but I want him to swear that he's making an accusation against me. If your accusation is true, then you swear by Allah that it's the truth. And then if the guy can't do it, then you reach a sort of stalemate and then innocent until proven guilty, so the, the charges are dropped. So anyway, that's just a sort of easy summary of how this would play out in terms of the plaintiff. Either he has evidence or he doesn't, and if he doesn't, then it goes to an oath. And if it goes to an oath, then if he gives the oath, then it's, the charges are dropped. But if he doesn't make an oath, then it's kind of this interesting situation where the oath gets thrown back to the other guy. So we'll out at him. It's just an interesting way that, uh, you know, very basic explanation of how, uh, you know, this, this would work in the legal system. Now, it's very important that you hear both sides. And we know this to be the case because there's a whole story in the Qur'an that is in Surah uh, Sa'd, starting from Ayah 21 all the way to 26, where Allah Ta'ala describes Dawood when he was praying in his mihrab. And then suddenly two people appeared before him and they were these plaintiffs. And they were complaining. One of them was saying, you know, I have uh, only one ewe. ewe. An ewe is a type of animal, right? It's maybe similar to a sheep or whatever the case is. So I only have one of these ewes. And my brother has 99. And he took the one from me. And so I think that was unjust. And so Dawood he was in the middle of his worship, praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He gets startled. These two people show up. They want this case to be solved in front of them. And I'm just summarizing the story. But basically what happens is that he says, well, you know, he only had one and you have 99, so you should give it back. It's not fair that you take it. And then immediately they both disappeared. And immediately, Dawood fell into sajda and repented and asked Allah to forgive him. Why? Because they disappeared and he realized that these were actually angels, angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they, this wasn't a real case, this was a test. And, and he actually had failed the test, that was the whole idea. And how did he fail the test? The idea was that he asked one side for the description and he never asked the other side to say, well, what's your side of the story? He just thought, well, you only have one, he's your brother, he has 99, come on man, that's unfair. Give him back his one. But you don't know the reason why. You didn't even hear the other guy's side of the story. And so subhanAllah, it's a very, very important, the whole, the whole uh, if you guys want to read through the whole thing, I'm not going to go through all of it, but subhanAllah, it's a very por important portion. And I would say that if you don't get anything from tonight's talk, at least remember this one point, because I would say that this is probably the thing that is the most neglected and overlooked, which is what? This idea of 
listen to both sides before you make a judgment. I would say that this is easily one of the things that we are supposed to as Muslims apply in our lives that we just simply completely ignore. Some, a friend of you comes up to you, can you imagine so-and-so did this and said that and did this and said that? Wow, he's the worst. Oh my God, I can't believe he did that. I take your side. That guy, forget that guy. He's the worst. SubhanAllah. What happened to hearing both sides? Oh, forget about it, right? So SubhanAllah, this is so important to the point that the Prophet said, the Prophet he said what? فَإِذَا جَلَسَ بَيْنَ يَدَيْكَ الْخَصْمَانِ فَلَا تَقْضِيَنَّ حَتَّى تَسْمَعَ مِنَ الْآخَرِ كَمَا سَمِعْتَ مِنَ الْأَوَّلِ This is part of a larger hadith in which the Prophet was giving advice to Ali ibn Abi Talib before he sent him to Yemen to go be a judge. And Ali was quite nervous. This is a big job. I mean, I'm going to be a judge. Are you serious? So he was quite nervous about this. The Prophet was reassuring him, don't worry, you'll be able to do it. And one of the things that he told him was what? When two litigants sit in front of you, do not decide until you hear what the other has to say, just as you have heard what the first person had to say. You have to listen to both equally. Don't pass judgment quickly. And so we have these in the ayat of Qur'an, we have this in the hadith, and so on and so forth. Yes. Now, we should also, we should remember that the judge, it's his job, the ju it's the judge's job to make sure that the one who is swearing the oath, the defendant, who is saying, no, 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 the, the, the plaintiff is, is making a false charge. It's the judge's job to make sure that that defendant understands just how severe it is that you swear by Allah falsely. You have to instill fear. I mean, this whole concept exists in the Western world when they put their hand on the Bible and they say, I swear to twelve, nothing but the truth, so help me God, you know. Uh, it's the same kind of concept. But in this case, we know that Ibn Abbas, for instance, he was reminding different uh, defendants about the words of Allah Ta'ala and he would, he would remind them that Allah says what? إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَشْتَرُونَ بِعَهْدِ اللَّهِ وَأَيْمَانِهِمْ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا أُولَيْكَ لَا خَلَاقَ لَهُمْ فِي الْآخِرَةِ وَلَا يُكَلِّمُهُمُ اللَّهُ وَلَا يَنْظُرُ إِلَيْهِمْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَلَا يُزَكِّيهِمْ وَلَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ SubhanAllah, look at just, it piles one after the other after the other. Allah says what? Indeed, those who exchange the covenant of Allah and their own oaths for a small, small price. In other words, they make a false oath just for some sort of a worldly benefit, for some sort of small price. Will have no share in the hereafter. Allah will not speak to them or look at them on judgment day. Nor will he purify them, and he will, and uh, they will have a painful punishment. Subhanallah, laying it on very heavy, one after the other. So this is you're supposed to let people know, fear Allah, don't swear by Allah that uh, something that is not true. And furthermore, we know that the Prophet uh, Abu Bakr anhu he says what? Kunna عند رسول الله صلى الله عليه Three times the Prophet was with the Sahaba and he said, Should I tell you about the, should I inform you about the most grievous, uh, egregious of sins? The, some of the worst sins. He repeated three times. And then he said, What? Al Ishraku Billah, associating partners with Allah, and being disobedient and uh, you know, evil towards your parents. And what? And false testimony. وَكَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ مُتَّكِئًا فَجَلَسَ فَمَا زَالَ يُكَرِّرُهَا حَتَّى قُلْنَا لَيْتَهُ سَكَتَ Imagine, the Sahaba said that the Prophet was sitting back while talking, but then when he said the third one, the shahadat al-zur, or qawl al-zur, the false testimony, false speech, he sat up and he started saying it in such an intense way and saying it over and over again. He's talking about the, the evils of, of, of a false oath so much that they said, we wish he would stop. Like imagine he just keeps saying it over and over, the, the, the crowd is like getting nervous, like just please, just can you stop? We get it, please stop. Imagine how intense it must have been in that moment. So clearly the Prophet is trying to, uh, you know, you could say drill this message deep into their minds, which is what? That uh, clearly this is a very, very big deal.
and there's another hadith in this regard. Uh, that he who appropriates the right of a Muslim by swearing a false oath, Allah will make the hellfire necessary upon him and declare paradise forbidden for him. And then, and then somebody in the crowd, they asked, even if it's something small, O Messenger of Allah, He says, even if it's just a branch of a, of, a, of a tree. Imagine, it's not about the size. Oh, you know, I just swore a small oath and it was just something, you know, it wasn't like millions of dollars or nothing, it was just something small. Even if you're swearing a false testimony just for the sake of acquiring a stick, which is nothing. You can go outside and grab 10 of them if you want. Even if it's for that, then subhanAllah, this is a huge threat to that person that in the, in the afterlife they're going to have a very, very hard time. May Allah protect us all. Ameen Ya Rabbil Alameen. So this brings up a very important question of what are the criterion for being a witness? Because al-bayyina, al-bayyina could refer to qara'in, you know, uh, like circumstantial evidence or, you know, uh, some sort of evidence like this. It could refer to shuhada, witnesses, and it can refer to al-iqrar, meaning uh, somebody, uh, admission, right? But the question of, about shahada, who is allowed to or who qualifies to give their testimony? So the witness must be sane, number one. Number two, of sound memory. Number three, it should be an adult. Of course, there can be exceptions if a child saw something and then you can have the child testimony, but mostly that's, you usually want somebody who is an adult. Uh, Muslim, especially when it's involving and dealing with Muslims and you want somebody who actually has iman and faith and so forth. And then uh, a person of integrity and honesty, as in a Muslim who is fulfilling their obligations and avoiding public sin. In fact, public evil and public sin can disqualify somebody from being a uh, shaheed or a, you could say a, a witness in these type of cases. And of course, they cannot have a conflict of interest. So obviously, if you know, oh yeah, I have you know, five witnesses, they're all from my family, they're all like my, my brothers and cousins and so forth. Uh, you know, the judge might say, we can't take them because obviously they're gonna take your side. If you know, they're very you know, family-oriented, tribal, whatever the case is, then they'll take your side no matter what. You, know, you just tell them, say this, okay, I'll say it. For my brother, I'll say it, right? So there can't be a conflict of interest. Now, what is the ruling on being a witness? It is a fard kifayah. In other words, if let's say a big group of people saw something, and then the judge says, I need witnesses. So long as enough witnesses showed up and said and de declared the truth so that it was known to the judge, then everybody else is, is exempted from that obligation. So that's what it means to, to be a communal obligation, that some, enough people have to do it that the job is done, and then everybody else is exempt. But if nobody does it, then everybody is sinful. It's the same thing with, let's say, for, the, for example, the adhan. If one person gives the adhan, then we're all good. But if nobody gives the adhan, then we're all sinful, because you have to establish the adhan. As an example, that's an example of fard kifaya. And in fact, Allah says what? That and let not the witnesses refuse when they are called upon. In other words, Allah is saying that witnesses should not refuse. If you are a witness and you saw something, you have to say what you saw in order for the truth to be established. That, and, uh, and Allah says also, and do not conceal testimony for whoever conceals it, his heart is indeed sinful and Allah is knowing of what you do. So it's very important that you do actually give your shahada and your witness. Now, there's different numbers of witnesses for different acts. So for instance, we know that in Surah An-Nur, Allah mentions that there should be four witnesses to establish the accusation of adultery or uh, uh, fornication, zina. As Allah says, وَالَّذِينَ يَرْمُونَ الْمُحْصَنَاتِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَأْتُوا بِأَرْبَعَةِ شُهَدَاءِ uh, so Allah says, 
that and those who accuse a chaste woman and then do not produce four witnesses, lash them with eight, 80 lashes and do not accept from them uh, testimony ever after that. And those are the defiantly disobedient. This is how much Allah Ta'ala protects the, 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 the reputation of people. If you're going to make a big accusation and say, oh, so-and-so is uh, you know, sleeping around in a lewd way, this and that, you better have four witnesses that can testify that are righteous, that are uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, trustworthy, that can testify that they saw the literal act, the physical act. And if you cannot, then it is not your business to talk about this type of, this type of thing. So that means even if you yourself walked into a room, I gave a khutbah about this once and I mentioned that even if you were to walk into a room and see two people doing something, and you were to go out and say, hey, guess what I saw? You're the one that gets punished. Why? Because you were not supposed to expose their business. The only way is if you had four witnesses, which means what? That means that basically they're doing it in public. If they're doing it in public, then of course, now the punishment is implemented upon them for the uh, zina. But if it's anything less, basically if they're doing it in any way, in any means whatsoever that's private, then it is nobody's business to talk about what people's sins are behind closed doors. That is for them to repent to Allah Ta'ala and fix their own issues on their own time. We talked about this in detail previously. Now, when it comes to the requirements for witnesses, when it comes to marriage, divorce, or in any other general cases, like for example, the uh, had like the, the punishments, then usually it is two witnesses. Allah says, uh, And bring two witnesses uh, of just men from amongst you and establish the testimony for the acceptance of Allah, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is also the case with regards to... Um, uh, it could be men and women. And this is why Umar ibn al-Khattab during his time, he took the, the testimony of a woman who said, my husband is a drinker, and that shahada, that testimony was enough. So uh, whether it be one, uh, a man, woman, the judge, by the way, it should be, it should be well known, it should be established, I, I need to say, that it's important that we remember that the requirement for multiple witnesses is to make matters clear, but it is not a requirement for the judge. In other words, yes, the judge would like, let's say, two witnesses for the had punishment. But it could be that only one witness came, came and that witness was sufficient. So yes, of course, you want you know, a, a good number to establish things, but a judge can work and make decisions based on less than that, given uh, other circumstantial evidence as well. Uh, so Allah knows best about that. Now, with regards to money transactions, this is where things get more interesting because of the very well-known ayah. Well, Allah Ta'ala says, in Ayat al-Dayn, Allah mentions, وَاسْتَشْهِدُوا shahidain." That Allah says what? And bring to witness two witnesses from among your men. And if there are not two men available, then a man and two women from those who you, who you accept as witnesses. So this ayah is usually the one that is attacked by, uh, you know, um, let's say the Western world, because they say, oh, look at this. It says two men, or if not two men, then one man and two women. And that, oh, so what, a woman's testimony is only half of a man? And so they get very upset about this. Now, so there's a, a few ways to answer this. Number one, this is specific to money and transactional situations. And why do we know that to be the case? Because of different narrations that mention, for instance, the fact that there were women that would make shahada uh, just by themselves, and it would, be, it would be accepted as sufficient evidence. And a good example of this is Aisha, she mentions, anha that there was a, a, a woman that, uh, oh wait, where is this mentioned? It says, um, there's a story about the woman who she made testimony. Uh, uh, yeah, so Uqba uh, ibn al-Harith, actually, excuse me. It was Uqba ibn al-Harith. He said, فَزَوَّجْتُ إِمْرَأَةً فَجَاءَتْ إِمْرَأَةٌ فَقَالَتْ إِنِّي قَدَ أَرْضَعْتُكُمَا That once Uqba, he married a woman, and then later, uh, uh, an older lady, she said, hey, 
you and your wife, I gave you both milk. I, I, you know, you both suckled. And that makes you uh, uh, milk brother and sister. That makes you related from that perspective. From a fiqh perspective, you two are actually related. And so you have to cancel your, your marriage because you, you can't be married, you're siblings. فَأَتَيْتُ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ And the Prophet said, he said, he said, can I stay married? And he said, وَكَيْفَ? How can you do that? وَقَدَقِيلٌ And it was already said that you two are, you know, you, you suckled from the same wet nurse. دَعْهَا uh, عَنْكَ And then he said basically, get away from her. So this is one shahad from one woman and it was considered acceptable. Why? Because it's in a case that she knows very well. A very good example of this as well is who? The fact that all of the wives of the Prophet whenever they narrated a hadith, it was never said to them, where is your second uh, you know, testimony. If Aisha anha, she said the Prophet did this. During the night, he used to pray like this. During the day, he used to make wudu like that. He used to do this, that, or the other. That's one testimony. Nobody ever said, oh Aisha, where's your second testimony? Nobody says this. What is the proof? What, is this? what does this demonstrate? That, yes, a woman's testimony by herself, by itself, is clearly evidence. 100% for sure. Yet, it seems that there is an issue with regards to uh, and by the way, same thing with the Hanafis, Hanbalis, and Shafi'is, and some of the Shafi'is. They say that the testimony of one woman regarding the moon sighting, the beginning of Ramadan, that is accepted. So, what is the idea when it comes to money that either two male witnesses or one male witness and two women? Why is it? Why is that the case? Well, there's a few possibilities. Uh, one is because specifically when it comes to money issues, it could be the case that people become very heated. People become very aggressive. People want to intimidate. And so maybe it's a, it's a mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He says, listen, two men can go and deal with the situation. But if you could only have one man, then send two women. Why? So they can back each other up. So she doesn't go alone. She doesn't feel intimidated or pressured. She has you know, some, some sort of support. I have personally heard some sisters say, I felt very good when I actually went and gave my shahada and I had somebody with me to take with me because that, that's what I uh, appreciated a lot. So that's one idea. And the second idea, and I think this is, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense too, is that we know that Allah says what? So Allah Ta'ala specifically says, men are the protectors and maintainers of women by the right of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, uh, because uh, by uh, what Allah Ta'ala has given one over the other, some over some, and by what they spend, of maintenance for their wealth. So in other words, Allah Ta'ala is describing here that look, when it comes to marriage, it seems that there are different roles. That each gender has, you could say, the upper hand in one regard and the other. And I think it's pretty obvious what it is. That men can't have children without women, right? So clearly when it comes to producing children, women have the upper hand, right? That, that's, that's, they have access to children. That's why men get married. Men get married, generally speaking. Why? Because they want a family, right? So that is what they you could say that is their, you could say their uh, unique contribution that a man cannot have without a woman. But obviously we know that pregnancy is very difficult. Body transforms, it's difficult to walk, uh, baby's waking you up constantly in order to feed it, you don't, you don't get proper rest. And so as a result of this, the woman becomes usually quite dependent. And so it's only natural that a woman is going to be interested only in getting pregnant from a man who is dedicated, loyal, and is interested in being a good provider and taking care of all the necessities. Because if I'm going to become dependent because of you, then I want to make sure that I can actually depend upon you. You better be dependable. Seems pretty reasonable as a trade-off. And so if that is the case, this is the reason why it is a man's responsibility to take care of the finances, right? That's why the responsibility of finances falls upon the man in Islam. And we have a famous hadith in this regard. Anna Hind bint Utbah, uh, yes, Utbah, قالت, Ya Rasulullah, inna Aba Sufyan, rajulun shahih. That once Hind came to uh, Abu Sufyan and said, You know, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, 
uh, Abu Sufyan, my husband, he's very cheap. <laughs> and so she says, um, he, he, he doesn't give me enough for myself and for my child. Except for what I take from him while he doesn't even know. So she's going and saying, look, I, I take money from him because he's just too cheap. What did the Prophet say? Take what is sufficient for you and sufficient for your child in goodness. In other words, yes, okay, it's okay, you can take. You can even take without his knowledge. But don't overdo it, you know, just do, do, do something that's reasonable, something that's good, something that's, uh, you know, fair. So the idea is what? That you have to see both sides of the equation. That yes, I think sisters usually cheer when it's like, hey, the responsibility of money is on the men only, and sisters, you don't have to lift a finger when it comes to finances. Usually you hear the women saying, yeah, you know, cheering and saying, yes, that's right, you men have to work, and we don't have to. And that's fantastic. But then there's another side of the equation, which is what? If men are the ones that are running the finances, then isn't it reasonable to say that in general, most of the time, they will be more familiar with transactions and monetary issues? I mean, that's their responsibility, right? With great power comes great responsibility, with great responsibility comes great power, right? They kind of go hand in hand. And so it's reasonable to say that, okay, you're responsible as men for the finances, and because of that, you deal with finances more, and therefore your testimony may be weightier and heavier. I hope that's not too offensive to anybody. I hope you guys can appreciate the logic. I hope it's reasonable, inshallah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, the Prophet ﷺ said what? Uh, it is sufficient of a sin for a man that he neglects him who he maintains. In other words, a man is considered sinful if he's not taking care of his wife and kids financially. So the idea of just saying, oh, well, you know, you should work and figure it out. A man's not allowed to say that. If you got married, it's your responsibility. Even if you think, mashallah, and even if she is genius and she can make lots of money, great, that's her money. She can make that money. And that's her money, she can keep it. And you're like, but what about the finances? That's your responsibility. It's brutal, but that's what it means to get married. So may Allah make us strong enough to handle that. Amin. Yes, so I hope that's clear. Um, Yes, moving on. Requirements for making an oath. The requirement for making an oath is that you only make an oath by Allah. You can't say, I swear by the Kaaba, I, I swear by the Quran, nothing like this is allowed in Islam. As the Prophet says, what? Man kana halifan billahi That whoever has taken an oath, whoever takes an oath, should, take an, should swear by Allah or remain silent. No oaths by anything or anybody else other than Allah Ta'ala. Allah can swear by many things. Wal-shams, wal-asr, wal-duha. Allah can swear by time, Allah can swear by time, Allah by Fajr. Allah can swear by whatever He wants. We only swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that is the ultimate authority that is supposed to make you speak the truth, inshaAllah ta'ala. Now, final, final few points, inshaAllah ta'ala. Yeah, uh, the final point that I want to make is two ahadith regarding the judge himself. The judge has to do his absolute best to make sure that he tries to arrive at the best conclusion. He should not be lazy and he should.